You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Dress, the History of Fashion, is a production of Dressed Media. With over 8 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Trust, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Dress listeners, do not wig out (laughs) or perhaps do (laughs) Um, because we are back with part two of our episode with Jessica Glasscock to discuss her recent book, Wigging Out, Fake Hair That Made Real History. Earlier this week, Jessica joined us to chat about the fashionability of wigs in the ancient world, all the way through to one of the most satirized periods of fashion history and artificial hair at the court of Marie Antoinette. And today, we are going to fast forward all the way up into the present. Jessica, you may remember, is a fashion historian, author, and held the positions of researcher and education liaison at the Costume Institute at the Metropolitan Museum of Art for well over a decade. Her other titles include Strip Tease, From Gaslight to Spotlight, and Making a Spectacle, A Fashionable History of Glasses, which, of course, you may remember, Jessica joined us last year in 2022 to discuss that book about said spectacles. Mm-hmm. So if you're not turned into that episode already, please do so. And a warm welcome back to Jessica for part two. Today, we pick up as we transition out of the 18th century and into the 19th. Without further ado, more with Jessica. Well, you know, the poof and also quickly the wigs that were favored by the macaronis immediately fell out of favor post-French Revolution for its political implications in in a big part. Um, But the fervor for fake hair didn't necessarily dissipate. As we move into the 19th century, it just became slightly more of a stealth operation. Um, You title one of the chapters in your book, uh, Only Her Hairdresser Knew For Sure. Can you tell us about what you meant exactly by that in the context of the 19th century and also about the market and trade for hair at this time? Did it really yeah. differ from, you know, how, how hair had been acquired in the past? Well, you know, I feel like one of the interesting aspects of 19th century wig making and, and the making of all of these hair pieces, all these false, false, different kinds of false hair, 
was that you really see the industrialization of the process to mm-hmm. a great degree. Um, now, when we talked about, you know, celebrity hairdressers in the 18th century, I think we've also got to give a nod to Diderot and his encyclopedia because he really laid down the process. Here's how it's done. Here's Mm -hmm. the history of this thing. Here's how it's, yeah, here are the tools. Let us give you a diagram. Let us show you how like a wig cap is made, how you might model the pattern for that. He made that all available. And so even the wigs faded, especially the poof and these exaggerated styles. In fact, wig making continued and improved. In fact, the Alatitis haircut, which marks the end of the 18th century and the post-revolutionary moment, encouraged more wig making because women had their hair so short that if they wanted to change their style, it was easier to try another wig because they didn't have that much hair to style anymore. And so you actually have mm-hmm. wigs sort of continuing, but yes, more covert. Big mm-hmm. hair becomes the hallmark of 19th century in the sense of industrialized hair. And where it was coming from typically was the north of France, was Brittany. That oh, was for a very specific reason. Well, number one, uh, a lot of blonde hair there which was considered by wig makers ideal in part because you could dye it and take it to other colors without damaging it too much. But also because it was a rural culture where there was traditionally worn like these specific kind of cap that covered Mm -hmm. the back of the head. And so young women in Brittany would expect a hair merchant to sort of come to town in harvest season to buy their hair, usually for a pittance, not even very much money, but they would come to town to buy their hair or maybe barter for their hair somehow with a piece of textile or something like that. Um, And then they would cover the back of their head where the hair was missing with the cap. So in a Mm -hmm. sense, for their fashion, there there was no loss, no sense of loss of the hair. And so you have that business coming, becoming really well established. And then a lot of making of hair pieces in Paris then that are really sold to the U.S. as much as well. Like that becomes the center of a lot of hair making and then distributed from Paris because of this specific supply and tradition, which, as I understand it, did go back to the 17th century as well. But you really start to read about it as a process that's a known process in like Harper's Bazaar in 1869, where they detailed this process. So the hair is harvested. That was the term that they used. And then mm-hmm. it is sort it is washed in mm-hmm. some way. They're not they're not highly specific about how it was washed, which I always felt like it's treated somehow. Great. You know, hopefully not too much because you don't want to denature the hair. Then it's sorted into lengths. Uh, I think anywhere from two to 24 inches. You want to sort it all by length. It's all got to be laid the same way. And then it's, it's all sorted for color as well. And then this is the material that goes from the hair merchants to the hair makers who are making rats and mice and waterfalls and all of these little frizzes, little curls, Everything is sort of made and then sold to the hair emporiums. There's a couple of uh, early 
early. A couple of more celebrity hair designers. Uh, Crozet was one who really specialized Mm. in these wonderful braid constructions. Uh, And he got his name into fashion plates. That's always the mark. If the fashion magazine is like acknowledging (laughs) a hair artist, then you have arrived, you are there. He was that guy. And And that's the other thing that's challenging about 19th century hair and like identifying it is full wigs again were only used by people who'd who'd fully lost their hair what you saw a lot more of were additions of various kinds maybe at the front maybe at the back maybe just a circle of a braid maybe a bun and that becomes a big part of where fake hair is it's not so much wigs it's interwoven it's the idea of extensions and these other things and this is in a period it's really necessary because I mean, oh my God, I've been I've been waiting to say this to someone, it's gonna be you, but there's a <laughs> group of 19th century gentlemen who were just horny for hair. Like that idea of long flowing, the pre-Raphaelites obsessed. Oh yeah, for sure. That's the ideal. And if you have hair down past your behind then maybe you can pull off some of these incredible Victorian, you know, full cascading curls coming down that echo the bustle and that kind of thing. Um, But not everybody does. And so if you wanted to be the mode, you had to buy these extra pieces. And you could go to a hair emporium and they could bring you a tray you know, of like, here is, you know, depending on where the hair is, like, are you putting it all in front these days? Are you like cascading down the back in the period of the bustle? It's so funny that the hair is echoing the bustle as well. Mm -hmm. Um, That was how it was done. And there was an interesting tension about it and about revealing it. And so that's why I sort of think about it that way, because the ideal, the beauty ideal was this long, luxuriant, almost medieval, loose hair. And yet you would never, you know, you would never really see it. That was an intimate moment, right? Like full uncovered loose hair. That's a very erotic ideal. Mm -hmm. But, and then that's what makes those fantastic hairstyles of the period. But if you didn't have that, that, you were going to have to add that. And There was a lot of money to be made at that. There were tons and tons of hair being exported from Paris to achieve that. Yeah, it was big, big, big business in the 19th century. And, mm-hmm. and you know, as you say, you know, maybe her only, only her hairdresser knows. So, you know, the, the goal was to incorporate the false pieces into your own hair, right? To make it more abundant, perhaps more luxurious. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it is advertised everywhere in ladies magazines. So it wasn't like this tippy top secret, you know, like you said, there were, there are hair emporiums. These are these ginormous stores where you would go and buy it. And you see these hair pieces advertised in Harper's Bazaar, in Vogue, in French magazines in the 19th century. It is everywhere. So it was an incredibly common practice. Yeah, absolutely. Um, But I don't know if you would have pointed it out on anybody. I mean, right. I was fascinating. Right. I was looking at some sort of like, like I was looking for evidence of this, right? Like in mm-hmm. the fashion magazines. And if you saw like a hairstyle, no one was going to call it out as like having these added elements. 
But if you went to the back pages of Harper's Bazaar in the late 19th century, where they had instructions, that's where you find that hair. They're like, yeah, you're going to have to buy a piece. Like, if you want to do this hairstyle (laughs) that we've just drawn this lady in, you will need these extra pieces and, you know, go get them. Do it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the pendulum is going to swing back again from stealth again to status at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, You know, much like in ancient Egypt when the wearing of wigs was sort of performative in its associations, or it could be. Thousands of years separate these two time periods that we're going to speak about, but colored wigs were worn in ancient Egypt, and rather surprisingly, they began to make an appearance on haute couture runways in the 1910s. Why do you think that wigs reemerges during this period as an element of fashionable fantasy? And do you want to talk a little bit about this uh, colored wig fad of the 19-teens? I would love to because this was a little bit of a surprise to me. I was like, wait, mm-hmm. what? I hadn't written. There's a there's a wonderful Barbier print of a woman with an egret and an egret feather headdress. And this is the first time I realized that she was wearing a wig, that she has blue hair that is a wig underneath it. And it blew my mind. And... I I thought I knew Lucille's work, The House of Lucille. I mean, she really brought in this idea to high fashion with very strong colors. Colors with names like Crushed Strawberry, Nile Green, you know, (laughs) I mean, really strong colors. We don't think I think of the 1910s as that avant-garde, but they were very fun. Um, So... A couple of things happen. I think number one is that hairdressers were actively trying to promote these strongly colored wigs, which were being made at that time from Chinese hair. And Mm -hmm. so the use of Chinese hair meant that they could treat it really heavily and then dye it these dramatic colors. So so it was a, a thicker hair and it could be sort of stripped and then made these strong colors in a way that, mm-hmm. that the sort of Brittany hair wouldn't have survived, in a sense, because it was, it was more delicate and the dyeing process would have impacted it too strongly. Whereas if you were sort of treating this other hair, you could, you could do that. And so there was a literal wig party that was mm-hmm. sort of encouraged and hosted and all of the hairdressers invited like the important mannequins or models of the period from all of the different design houses to come to this party and to wear their wigs and to kind of launch this trend. Lucille probably had the most success with it, doing these really strong colors. Uh, The House of Beer also did Mm -hmm. some wigs. They were leaning more towards a powdered wig, like a light pink, a light white. I think that it also played in well to the fancy dress ethos of the era, these sort of parties that were being thrown where you would really do a full costume, like not a fashion look, but a costume look, like dress up as something. So that was a part of it as well. And this persists. And I love this, you know, the unnatural wig, you know, this, like, everyone knows you're wearing a wig. And that emerges in this period. There's a bit of an ebb and flow. I think that Mm -hmm. the intensely colored wigs kind of have maybe a two to three year run really a pretty Mm -hmm. 
quick run. They were still kind of expensive. So that may have yes. been part of it. But then you start to see things like tinsel wigs coming through or sort of flower wigs in the 1920s. Like there's a lot of assertively unnatural hair that is embraced, that is the shape that the wig takes. This is also interesting because this is in the period when women are starting to cut off their hair. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so you have like these shorter haircuts that are more flexible for the wearing of wigs and for this kind of more rapid change of hairstyle. And I think right. that's a big part of the story as well is like the cycle of fashion is starting to move faster when we get to the 20th century. Wigs are a part of that. These unnatural wigs continue into the 1920s uh, where you're seeing Mm -hmm. flower wigs, you're seeing things like tinsel wigs. And I think it relates very much to the acceleration of fashion that is happening Mm -hmm. in this period. And also that women are cutting their hair off and sometimes perming and curling and damaging their hair as well. So you have a new ethos of hairstyling and how it works. And the wig really comes in as a part of the hair wardrobe, if you will, that mm-hmm. idea that that you can consume even more hair this way. And mm-hmm. you have these early designers associated with it, but you still have the tradition of the celebrity hairdresser continuing through. Um, and one of the significant figures is Antoine who yes. I adore. He's outlandish. He's outrageous. He's I amazing. I think Antoine was so goth. I love him. He slept in a glass <laughs> coffin, apparently. <laughs> Into it. Supportive. Um, Antoine came from a tradition of hairdressing and really emerged, I think, is more of a celebrity in the 1930s because he started mm-hmm. to do, again, these unapologetically unnatural wigs. And his argument was that fashion was sort of getting so dramatic that for evenings out, for your full formal wear, you needed something more, something more dramatic. And he had this sort of specific pomade that he used to style hair. It was very, like, heavy and goopy in a sense. Like, it made it almost, the hair almost more sculptural. It was Mm -hmm. not trying to look like natural hair. And he made, he did hair like that. And he made wigs like that. He was a, uh, I think, a Scaparelli fan. Certainly Scaparelli was a fan of his. He even made her a human hair wig of blonde hair to wear on the ski slopes. I don't know if there are any pictures of that. I could not find a picture of that, but I was so excited to hear that it exists. There's great there's great photographs of Scaparelli wearing Antoine's wig. Uh, Daisy Fellows was pictured in Vogue wearing his wigs, and there's this like, yeah, there's a thickness to it. It's it's just this sort of heavy style, and he did great colors, really strong colors. Again, you know, unnatural, not powdered, not like that light Rococo thing, but like heavy, intense colors that I would imagine aligned really well with the sort of chemical dyes and strong prints that are in fashion in the 1930s. I mean, Mm -hmm. in a sense, he wasn't wrong. These these clothes did call for a little more and maybe something unnatural. Um, He was a great self-promoter. And, you know, the fact that we know that he slept in a glass coffin 
speaks to his ability to assert himself. And again, he's one of those hairdressers that is identified and credited in fashion magazines. And Mm -hmm. I'm here to tell you, there's other wigs that I've seen in fashion magazines in the 1930s, but the only ones that are credited that I've found are two Antoine's. And the others, I think, aren't meant to be recognized. Dress listeners, whatever your reason for wanting to learn a new language, whether it's an upcoming international adventure, communicating with your friends and family abroad, or even professional purposes, Rosetta Stone has got you covered. As the trusted expert in language learning for 30 years now, you can join millions of Rosetta Stone users to learn any of the 25 languages offered. That includes Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, and so many more. And this is fast language acquisition, friends. There are no English translations, so you learn to speak listen and think in your new language. And right now you can get lifetime access to all 25 of Rosetta Stone's language courses for 50% off. That's language learning for 25 languages for the rest of your life, which Cass is frankly amazing. It is. And what are you waiting for, dress listeners? Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, dress listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Dress listeners, if you suffer from seasonal allergies like me, Astapro is your new go-to. It has been super helpful to me this spring as it bursts into full bloom. And that's because Astapro is the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter solution for nasal allergy symptoms. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray, and Astapro delivers full prescription strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. You too can get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief like I have with Astapro. It gets me back in the game, ready to record the show for all of you. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can Astapro and go today. That's A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Ask Pro and Go. Use as directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Menopause, perimenopause, these can be some of the most uncomfortable phases of a woman's life. If you find yourself in either of these, well, Hormone Harmony is here for you. Hormone Harmony capsules contain science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. And that means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it really shows. And get this. Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any woman with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it. 
but it is perfect for those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. And for a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use the code DRESSED at checkout. That's happymammoth.com and use the code DRESSED for 15% off today. Well, you know, high fashion's love affair with wigs kind of ramps up gently over the next few decades. Extensions and hair pieces continued to be worn into the 1960s when, as you quote Vogue in 1963 as saying, quote, be sure everybody knows at a glance that you are wearing a wig. So fashion, of course, Fashion brands, fashion houses are going to jump on this. Might you speak about some of the wig lines that are launched by fashion's elite in the 1960s? Some of these are quite surprising. Well, so you have a dual, dual nature approach to like wigs and celebrity hairstyle in the 1960s. Because there's a couple of significant hair artists who emerge more and more and are credited in the pages mm-hmm. of Vogue magazine. Era Gallant, think of that incredible Verushka image of her in the braid in the desert sand. Kenneth doing all the mm-hmm. New York ladies' hair. Um, Alexandre de Paris, uh, the, uh, the sisters uh, Rosita and Corita, uh, who do these amazing wigs for Givenchy. So when the wig thing starts to happen in the 60s, It starts in 1958 with Givenchy. And Mm -hmm. he decided that he needed fuller hair to go with this fuller look that he'd created. And so he calls on Rosita and Carita to do these bubble wigs. And they were a huge success. They were full human hair wigs on like a net base. And, you know, I was at a wig store today. They totally still make this wig. Like this wig, it's it's a very sort of specific bubbly shape uh, and it becomes a hit. And so you start to have all these collaborations like Andre Courage working with Alexandre de Paris to do mm-hmm. synthetic Dutch boy wigs. You know, you have a lot of designers pulling wigs from these hairstylists. But by the end of the 1960s, you start to see high fashion designers putting their name on wigs. Or hair pieces. Mm -hmm. Dior, in fact, put their name on a line of hair pieces, which kind of blew my mind. The least expensive one, I believe, was $70. And the most expensive one was a chignon that uh, was $400 and you had to get custom. You couldn't couldn't buy it off the rack, if you will. Um, Halston did a Mm -hmm. line of wigs. Oscar de la Renta did a line of wigs. I mean, that was a period in fashion of designers licensing their name out to a lot of things. I mean, I sort of was familiar with it from the history of eyewear. The wig market in 1960 was worth about Mm -hmm. $50 million a year. By Mm -hmm. 1971, it was $500 million a year. (gasps) Wow. So that shows you this arc. Now, uh-huh. two major parts of that arc. Mm-hmm. Number one, a company named Fashion Tress of Miami made mm-hmm. a deal with a temple in India 
where women went to dedicate their hair, the hair which had been dedicated, which was cut off, had typically been mm-hmm. burned. But Fashion Tress of Miami made a deal to use that hair for wigs. And so you start to see this very crucial market for Indian hair come in and really replace these other European hair markets, which were, in a sense, drying up. Um, Mm -hmm. And then you have, at the end of the 1950s, the invention of Dynell synthetic hair. Right. And that is a huge part of this. The fact that you could create hair out of petroleum product, essentially, over the course of the 1960s and dye it these insane colors that match up with all of the wonderful polyesters and this sort of space age aesthetic and shine like that was crucial as well. So when you get to the point in 1971, when you have major designers doing their wig lines, they're taking full advantage of the development of these new technologies of wig making that where you're no longer harvesting hair, but are instead kind of trying to make the perfect wig that you can, Mm -hmm. you know, put on as a light net. It's always styled. It doesn't really get dirty. And if it does, you just wash it out with woolite. Like that's where we Mm -hmm. were in 1971. Uh, I believe it was Monsanto who had an investment in the wig market uh, as a chemical company. They said that they estimated that 49% of women owned a wig in 1974, 49% of American women. That's a lot of wigs. Yeah. Well, and you know in the book that in the 1960s, Black American women embraced the high fashion wig equally, if not more widely than white women. Could you talk a little bit about the art of hair weaving and also hair extensions in African American culture? Sure. So, that 1971 moment that I talked about, you know, where wigs are at 500 million a year, it's this massive market, all the designers are in. Mm-hmm. That's actually certainly in the view of the mainline fashion press, by which I mean yeah. Vogue, Harper's Bazaar, actually the end of the mm-hmm. fashionability of wigs. But that was not the case in the Black Beauty Salon, where yes. wigs continued to find favor, but where also innovative techniques that sort of integrated false hair with natural hair in ways that were sometimes seamless, but sometimes wholly unique, really Mm -hmm. emerges and builds for a decade and a half before it's kind of picked up on again by the mainline fashion press. That includes the idea of the, the hair weave. I'm not going to presume to speak on the technique really in great detail, But what amused me is the first article I found about hair weaving in the mainline fashion press was in the New York Times. And it was about men, like Wall Street guys, going up to Harlem to try and get weaves from these Harlem hairdressers to get like the long (laughs) hair, like, like to get sort of fashionably long hair if they were losing their hair. And so... And what was remarkable was that the author of this article was sort of like, did, did we know about this? Like the, they're doing this technique and they sort of, you know, they, they, they tie in the hair and they tighten it up. And there's, this, this has been going on. This is the whole thing. It's not just Wall Street guys up here. People are getting their hair done this way. This is something they yeah, had never heard of. 
in the late 1970s, you also start to see some Afrocentric hairstyles that are based in braids and using beads in these salons as well. And there were a lot mm -hmm. of immigrants from Africa who are coming up into Harlem, especially who are bringing these techniques and then integrating them with other techniques that exist in the Black Beauty Salon. Um, so wigs and a lot of false hair kind of survives in this space and technically innovates in this space. While if you look at hair in the 1970s and, you know, Vogue, it's very sort of ironed flat. You know, mm -hmm. it's Brett girl, it's full blonde curls, it's long straight Farrah hair. Fawcett. Like that's the idea. Farrah Fawcett, you know, <clears throat> no more wigs. But mm -hmm. at the same time, those wigs are still in the back of the magazine as well, just like those hair pieces from the 19th century. But in terms of retaining the fashionability of these false hair pieces and these wigs, that lives to a degree in the black hair salon waiting to be rediscovered in the 1980s by the fashion mm -hmm. runway. Right. So innovations in the 1970s are occurring across the board in black salons. One other very interesting space where, where wig culture kind of rockets, skyrockets, is also queer culture. Um, you know, the 1970s also happened to be the era when, as you write in the book, quote, drag and trans culture increased in visibility and the high style wig became symbolic of the bleeding edge of gay activism. How was wig wearing an act of activism? Well, you are familiar, I'm sure, with the Stonewall Uprising. Absolutely. Well, the reason the police were in that bar was to arrest men who were dressed as women and women mm -hmm. who were dressed as men. The act of wig wearing by a man who was part of queer culture in New York was legally actionable and suspect. It was a radical act. Mm -hmm. It could be done on stage. That was a different thing as a performance, but to bring that wig to assert a, what at the time would have been called transvestite identity. We mm -hmm. would now read it more as a transsexual identity, but to assert that was radical. And so there emerges the performance and culture in queer culture in the 1970s that is very assertive about the right to, to cross these gender lines and to use the wig to do it. The more, the better, the bigger, the better. And it really addresses this idea that gender is a construction that right. you can make it, you can make yourself female. And this was very confrontational. Well, I mean, it's still very confrontational. But at the time in 70s New York, you get these great sort of radical fairies who yeah. are wearing wigs for fun and profit and music and performance. And to a degree, they also retain this history of wig and hairstyling because there is this performance and this camp element to it as well. So it's not about realness. It's about sort of playing around with and asserting fashion histories 
and invoking the wig all the way back to the original queens of Egypt and England. And that's all embedded in the performance. So to a great degree, at least in my view, drag culture also has this preservationist role in terms of the wig and in fashion history, because there's this camp element to the performance as well. There's a satirical element to this deconstruction of gender and female identity, but within it, you have to have a history of fashion as part of that discourse, a mastery mm -hmm. of it. And that is something that drag culture also brings to the story of the wig. Uh, and thank goodness, because that combined with the sort of preservation and new techniques coming out of black beauty salons bring the wig and all of its history and all of its values to the fashion runway in the 1980s. Right, right. Well, and, and also, too, I would argue that, you know, the popularity of events like Wigstock, um, which saw drag enter pop culture in a way that really paved the way for RuPaul's Drag Race. You know, w one could argue that RuPaul's Drag Race is this massive defining force of pop culture currently and has been for like the last 15 years or so. But the popularity of that is only probably even pushing wig technology even further into the future. Yes? Oh, absolutely. It's incredible. I, I like, I've watched all these super mixes of RuPaul's Drag Race. I just like, for the wigs, for all of the look, I would also say that, I don't know if you've seen uh, Queen Charlotte on Netflix. Yes. Cass and Whoa. I have actually already talked about the wigs on that might be my favorite part of all of Queen Charlotte. I sat there with my jaw open at some of those wigs. I mean, unbelievable. And I think that's amazing because it's combining, I think, historic hair with drag hair, clearly. Yep. Right? Absolutely. I mean, there there's because you know, because I've looked at this history and like those wigs that she's wearing, like they're not, they're not a thing. But through the lens of this more contemporary and this sort of heightened reality that defines the costume design of that show, you get these incredible wig stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have one last question for you because okay. I know our time is, is coming to a close. Where do you think we are currently in this ebb and flow of wearing wigs being a cultural norm? And also what if any specific context might we find the the transformative power of wigs and hair pieces? Where is it finding its greatest appreciation currently? Is it in queer culture? In queer culture, but I think, you know, I see the wig most persistently and most established in the ideal of fancy dress. Mm. And fancy dress as an everything, every it, fancy dress for me ranges from everything to the bachelorette party of mm -hmm. like matching wigs in Nashville, you know, to drag performance, to mm -hmm. going out to clubs and sort of these heightened and exaggerated fashion situations to these really exaggerated themes on fashion runways. Like I don't see the wig persisting widely in everyday fashion yeah. there's certainly the, there is you know elements of the black beauty salon have, have put wigs into everyday life in ways that 
may not be visible to people who aren't looking or understand it. I, but I think that is an everyday form of the wig. But I think this idea that of wearing wigs into work like the idea of the 1960s ideal of the wig, that you have a wig wardrobe and you change things up in that way. I don't know if we're going to have that, but I think what we do have is this wide range of wonderful wigs that capture all of the history. And I think we're going to keep having those to go out in. I I have a a quite a wig wardrobe of my own, but it, but it lives out at the Fire Island Pines. (laughs) That sounds like a great place for it. Which is obviously another space of queer performance. (laughs) Jessica, thank you so much for your incredibly amazing book. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for joining us again on Dressed. Thank you. Jessica, thank you again for joining us and including us in all the wonderful, fun history of wigs. And listeners, April mentioned this in part one of the episode, but Jessica's incredible book, Wigging Out, Fake Hair That Made Real History, is sure to be a new favorite for lots of you who are not only, you know, fashion history buffs, but also fans of art history. And I mean, it's incredibly richly illustrated with paintings, engravings, sculptures from throughout history, which evidence the fashionability of wigs over a millennia. And we cannot recommend it enough. So check it out and get a copy for yourself. Yes. And maybe this is the point where I remind listeners that you can now find more than 100 of Cass and I's favorite fashion history books, many of which have been featured on the show online. We have compiled them all for you in one super handy spot on our dressed bookshelf. So you can head over to bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash dressed to purchase any of these titles um, from an independent bookseller. And you will also be supporting two of your favorite podcasters. So again, (laughs) that site is bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash dressed. Well, that does it for us today, dress listeners. We hope that you consider adding a little wig to your wardrobe next time you get dressed. Remember, we love hearing from you. So if you'd like to write to us, you can do so at hello at dressedhistory.com. Dressedhistory.com is our new website. You can also DM us on Instagram, which is dressed underscore podcast. And this is, of course, where we will post lots of fun wig content this week. If you would like to find the content for this specific episode, you can search the hashtag hashtag dressed 303 and that's hashtag dressed 303. More dressed coming your way on Tuesday. Dress the History of Fashion as a production of Dressed Media. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.